So, as my brother said, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is where we're going to be today. And so if you open up your Bibles or your devices, we have 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. A little bit of context as you're turning there. Chapter 7, as you, be, as you may know, we've been speaking a lot about marriage and singleness. The last two sermons we were talking about marriage. The com- marriage commitment was last week. And next week we're going, to talk, we're going to be preaching on singleness. And it's interesting, Paul has this section right between marriage and singleness on this issue of contentment. Right? Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. No matter what state you're in, be content. And as my brother said, that uh, we'll be able to be content because we were content in Christ. And so the Corinthian culture was a very status-hungry culture where there was constant climbing, constant mobility, constant shifting going on within their church and their culture. And uh, they try to separate from one another. Because the more status one had, the better treatment they were able to get. Because the status you owned affected what you wore, right? The type of clothes you wore. The status that you had affected where you sat in the amphitheater, right? So if you go to the Staples Center, the more status you had, you could sit closer to the front. The status that you had uh, dictated, determined the level of power and influence you had. It's a big deal. Status was a big, big deal in Corinth. Status even de- determined who you're able to marry. Right? This is a big deal. And so, in, in essence, status determined how you were treated and how you treated others. And so this is something that the, the culture was about. There was this discontentment within the culture and always looking to climb. Okay, so let's keep this in mind as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 to 24. And I, I invite you to stand up again as we honor God's word here. 17 to 24 here. This is God's word. Verse 17. Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each. In this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this treasure that we hold in our hands. I pray, Lord, that we will understand your word more and get to know your son more. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. This is awesome. I just look so excited. Church family, I thank the Lord for the opportunity to preach, preach his word. And I want to thank you guys too. Thank you for the opportunity to preach week in, week out. There's no greater privilege for me to do this. And I just want to stay do my best to remain healthy. And uh, back in my old coaching days, I used to have 
kind of food prepared for me constantly, have the gym right there, even after practice, be able to get a few sets in to keep uh, in shape. It's harder for me these days because there's no gym there anymore. There's no professional chefs that are available. And so it's a little bit more challenging. But So what I do is I just I try to go jogging and just to try to maintain some level of physical condition because it helps me to have more energy and to be more alert. But jogging could be hazardous to your health. A couple months ago, I was jogging down San Gabriel Boulevard. So I lived, our family lives in San Gabriel. I, was, I go up to Huntington. I make a left. I head south on San Gabriel Boulevard. And I'm just jogging. It must have been in the late afternoon. And all of a sudden, I hear the screeching sound, and boom, I get into my old linebacker position already. Okay, what's going on? It was a car that was screeching. And it was kind of one of those scions, you know, kind of a high-cut car. And right up there in San Gabriel Boulevard, there's like a curve. And so this person probably wasn't familiar with that road. They are going too fast. And it was careening left, right, left, right. So in my mind, I'm looking at this thing. Okay, it's going left. i got to go right. I'm, I'm getting ready to jump out the way. And then it, 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 it regains its control and then just gets on its way. And I'm looking at the guy and I just keep jogging. And so that was just another reminder for me. The Lord constantly gives us these reminders that how short our lives are. I mean, in the moment, I'm thinking I'm taking care of my health. It could have been the worst thing for my health at that time. But God providentially allows these things to constantly remind us. Kind of like my, what my brother talked about. I feel the same way. I mean, a lot of these heroes, a lot of these people, icons, so to speak, that I grew up with are dying, right? Young and old. And I think this is a constant reminder for us about the shortness of our lives here on earth. And just like an athlete has a small window to make his athletic life count, as Christians, we have a small window here. And so this title of the sermon is called Make Our Lives Count. All right, make our lives count because God has us here for a purpose, amen? And while we're living here, God has a purpose and he has said, called us to do one thing and one thing only, go make disciples. Go make disciples. Because on the other side of eternity, there is no more disciple making. This is a special season for us. And, and I, I think this sermon in my heart comes with a certain level of urgency here. There's a sense of urgency within my own heart, within my own bones. God just constantly shows me and reminds me, hey, don't relax. All right? You're in the race. Keep running this race. And as a former coach, I know one thing. Focus needs to be there in order for us to be as as, uh, as effective as possible. So for within this life, if we're distracted, we're not going to be as effective as possible for Christ. And so today, th this is the issue. The topic is contentment. Paul is addressing the issue of contentment in the church of Corinth. And I believe 2,000 years later, God has a word for us through, through this word contentment. How are we content? Knowing this, that Jesus is enough. Do we actually believe that Jesus Christ is enough? When we know that he's enough, we're at peace. Contentment means this. I'm satisfied. I'm at peace. It's all good. No matter what the circumstances are, right? Jesus is enough. 
Or Satan, I believe, wants the church to be distracted. A distracted athlete, a distracted driver, a distracted person is not as effective as he could be or she could be. Satan wants a church distracting. And in American culture, it's about creating discontentment, amen? I mean, our, our economy is set up by buying and selling because I want the new car. I want to get to the new uh, house. I want the new clothes. I want to get to a certain, certain area code and zip code. And I want the new iPhone, right? We understand this. Young and old, we get this. We're constantly bombarded by the media, whether it's the advertisement or just things that we watch, that what we have is not enough. Discontentment. It's just how our economy works. I mean, even, I believe we live in a fulfillment type culture. I mean, we're, all of us, we want the perfect job, right? I think career is very important. I think it's very important. But check this out. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average worker today in America, the average worker stays at his or her employment for 4.4 years. And then on to something new. 4.4 years. 91% of millennials, okay, so what's a millennial? According to this study, those who were born in 1977 to 1997. I just missed it by a year, so I must not be a millennial, but my brother, you're a millennial, okay? So millennials, according to this study, this is not my own study, that 91% of millennials stay at their employment less than three years, Keith, less than three years. So that means that, that the 91% of these millennials will have 15 to 20 jobs in their lifetime. I mean, that's a lot of different jobs, right? How can you be good at anything when you're constantly changing? Right? And this is what we're talking about. This whole idea that if only I had this, I would be set. Right? If only I had a better spouse. If only I had a better job. If only I had more income. If only I had this new, brand new iPhone. I'd be set. Right? This is the idea that is stirring in our hearts in the spirit of the age of our culture. How can anyone be focused when we're always, always thinking about the next thing? Right? It's hard. It's really hard. So today we're talking about Christian contentment. This is the issue today, so that we can make our lives count for Christ. We want to be as effective as possible for Christ as long as we live on God's green earth here. So the three uh, points I just want to give to you ahead of time so to help you follow is let's be content with our calling calling. That's the first point. Second point, let's be content with our culture, with our culture. Third and final point, let's be content with our control, the level of control that we've been giving. Okay, so let's go to our first point here. Let's make our lives count by being content with our calling. Verse 17, I'm going to take it out of the scriptures here. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Paul is saying, as God called you, how he found you, whatever you're doing, keep going. Remain in that state. Verse 20 says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, when we're saved, if, if God uh, saved us while we're married, remain married. If God saved us in our single, when we're single, 
be okay with being single until you're not. Right? So the Corinthians were, were wrestling over this. Am I supposed to stay married? Am I supposed to be single now? How does this work out? All kinds of things were shifting in the life of the church. Remain. In other words, be content, Paul is saying. He emphasizes point three times in these short uh, couple verses. How can I do this? Right? I mean, think about it. A Corinthian, we look right back at Paul and Perhaps he's married to a non-believer, and as we talked about last week, and he or she may be asking, Paul, how can I do this? I think some of the issue is this. Why it's so hard to be content in our culture is this. The culture puts too much on our calling. Calling. What do I mean by that? Basically, I believe that the culture tries to define us by our calling, what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, think about it. Every time you meet someone new, they ask, like, oh, okay, um, what do you do for a living, right? That immediately puts you in some kind of a, a bucket, right? Okay, you're part of that group. Even the, our, 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 our ethnic uh, uniforms that we have on our faces kind of puts us into a certain category. Our age puts us into a, a certain category, all right? Oh, what colleges you go to? Right? That puts us into some kind of a grouping there. In this day and age, gender has become a big thing, right? Male and female, and am I supposed to be a male? Am I supposed to be a female? Our culture makes these things ultimate things in our lives. I believe that's part of the issue. Why we're not content in our calling. Well, calling may describe us now. Hear me now. Calling is still important. It describes who we are, what we do, so forth and so on. But calling will never, ever define who we are. Right? I want to draw our attention to this. Paul, in verse 17, uses his word as God has called each. Called. Not calling, but called. E-D. Called. God called. Kaleo. This is this word, kaleo, in the Greek original language, the Greek, and this word kaleo is used eight times in these short, verse 17 to 24. Eight times. Paul just hammering it across from verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, verse 24. As you're called, as you're called in the Lord, as you're called, as God called you, as you're called. Paul is driving home this point. This is what matters. This is what defines who you and I are in Christ. What this called idea, this kaleo, this, what this is talking about is about God's sovereign calling of us or God's sovereign election of us. How God called us out of darkness into light. God raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is that change that took place within us. When God summoned us out of that old state to our new state. This is that moment when we're called. This is the moment that rightfully defines who we are. Salvation. We're called into Christ. We're all about Christ. Amen? Individually, as a church family, at every grand should be. This is what we're all about. We're all about Christ. Christ is the one who's our firm foundation. Christ is, the, is our hope of glory. He's a certain hope that we rest in. Christ is our source of power. He gives us the power to live the Christian life. Christ is our Lord. He's the one we look to obey. Christ 
is the one we ultimately love the most. Amen? So being called, when Paul uses kaleo eight times, he's basically connecting us, reminding the Corinthians and Evergreen SUV that this is our identity. And since he is Lord and he's the one that called us, he also actually assigns us a specific purpose here. Verse 17, only as the Lord is assigned to each one. This word assign means has a has the carries the meaning of like as he's doled out or divided out. All right? That means he has a specific role and task for us. And as Sister Tani read, I'm gonna let's direct our attention to Ephesians chapter two here. I'm gonna read some of those verses that uh, that she read for us. Ephesians chapter two. I'm gonna start off with verse eight. This is this. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, the Bible says, right? Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Meaning our calling, our summoning had nothing to do with us. Meaning God saved us. God rescued us. Why? Why? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God saved us for a specific task. That's exciting for me to know when God has a specific role for me. Isn't that exciting? When you go join a new job, when you have a specific task. Even in our church staff, we're in the process of reorging our pastors. And we're, I want to make it very clear as, as the lead pastor, senior pastor, what everybody's role is and how that contributes to the main task of discipleship here at Evergreen SGV. This word workmanship at a, a chapter... Uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, is the word poema. Poema. All right? Poema, what does that mean? That means it's a one-of-a-kind work of art. That means you and I, brother and sister, are a work of art. One-of-a-kind. I know, I know we may not feel that way sometimes, but we are a one-of-a-kind work of art. Prepared for good work to fit a specific role, a specific task that God has called us to be a part of. Right? To, to build up his kingdom. And it says right here, I'm going to keep reading ahead in verse 10. For good works which God prepared beforehand, before even time began, God had a purpose for you and I. Every single Christian has a role so that we will walk in them. There's that word again that Paul used, so that we will walk in them. So we were created in Christ for a specific task. And God is the one in his great love for us, in his great love for his body, in his infinite wisdom, through his supreme power, has picked out, handpicked out a role for us. Our calling, our calling, whatever it may be. Perhaps the Lord is stirring your heart to be a missionary in a far land. Perhaps the Lord has called you to preach the word. Perhaps the Lord has called you to be in full-time ministry or just secular ministry. Maybe he's called you to do this, continue to raise your children at home. God has a specific call for us. And we're called to be content with the hand that we've been dealt with. God's the dealer here now. He's the one who will deal out the hand to all of us. We don't get to choose this. And God is calling us to be content. Now, I want to give some pitfalls, offer up some pitfalls on how we perceived calling, all right? I think there's two pitfalls. You can write this down if you want. One pitfall of calling is over-spiritualizing our calling. 
Another pitfall is under-spiritualizing our calling. What do you mean by that? Well, let me explain both. To over-spiritualize your calling is this. I need to, perhaps this thought has flown, uh, floated through your mind. I need to go into full-time ministry in order to count for God. Like, I need to go into, to work at the church full-time. I need to be a missionary overseas to count for God. Now, God may call you to that specific task. Obviously, he did for me. And as I look out, we have some missionaries here. I get that. Praise God. But that's a very unique and special calling that he's called for some of us. Right? Perhaps there's some young people in here that the Lord will call you to be a full-time missionary or pastor perhaps, a preacher of God's word. That could be. But what does it mean to under-spiritualize? Under-spiritualize means this. Maybe these thoughts have flown, uh, floated through your mind. I don't count because I just, I just have a normal job. No, 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 no. Brothers and sisters, what you're doing right now is the most important thing. We don't need a million pastors, trust me. We need, we need a million troops to be out there in the workforce into the communities, into the factories, into the companies. This is what we need. This is what the Lord needs. And I have a kind of an illustration. I remember um, when I was first called into pastoral ministry back in 2017. Uh, we're still living up in Washington. And people were so gracious. You know, people from the church and other places, other local churches would... Uh, come up and say hello to me and they're very gracious and encouraging and I, and I take this I took it in all the positive ways well they offered up man now you get to be do the most holy calling that you could ever hope to be a part of and I, I knew what they meant they're trying to be encouraging but in my mind in my heart I was trying to be guarded about that I said thank you very much but in my mind I, I thought to myself if God called me to remain as a football coach that would have been the most holy calling. This is the most holy calling because this is exactly what God has called me to do, as a, to serve as a preacher of God's word. However, whatever God has called you to do, whether it's at the bank, whether it's just be a stay-at-home mom, whether you're, you're selling real estate, whatever it is, you're a high school student, you're a college student, you want to be a business person, whatever it is, that's the most holy calling because God has called us to walk in the specific calling that he's given us. My wife, you know, she's always has a way of kind of keeping me focused at home, you know. <laughs> and um, she has a sign right by our sink where we do the dishes and it says, bloom where you're planted. Somebody, a friend of hers, a friend of ours gave it to her up in Washington, bloom where you're planted. Wherever God plants us, let's thrive. This is what we're called to do. And to nothing more, nothing less. But unless we're content in our calling, we're already thinking about the next thing. How are we going to dominate today when we're thinking about, oh, this is, I need something to do more? All right? Think about that. Let's focus. Fo Remember what I talked about earlier. Focus is absolutely critical for us to be able to be as effective as possible. And so, and what, what have we been called to do? There's only one mandate. Matthew 28, our Lord says to go make disciples. As you are going through life, go make disciples. Bloom where you're planted by being content 
with our calling. That's the first point. Now, that is the really the big idea here. Paul is saying, be content in where I have called you. God is speaking where God has called us. But Paul, <laughs> this guy is the, the, the super pastor. This guy is incredible. He gives, he provides two illustrations in this scripture in these, in these next couple verses to illustrate contentment. And man, he steps into the hornet's nest. He he chooses two controversial topics, and Pastor or Apostle Paul was never shy of any controversial topics. And he goes into the area of race relations within the church at Corinth. I think we could relate to this here in our culture today, and social classes. We could relate to this as well. So Paul steps into the shark tank, dives into the shark tank, and. He uses these two issues that were going on in Corinth to teach this point of contentment. So point number two, let's dive into the first illustration that Paul gives. Let's make our lives count by being content with our culture. Culture, fill in the blank, culture. The Corinthian church had racial tensions. The Corinthian church, all right? The church in Corinth. They had Jewish Christians and they had non-Jewish Christians, Gentiles, within the same church family. And this was a very divisive issue. So Paul wasn't trying to play it safe. He is going right at it. And uh, these are two distinct cultures too. Right? Jewish people believe, the Israelites believe that they're God's chosen people. The Jewish people had a very distinct culture. No question. They had, they, 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 they had the Old Testament, and they had vast knowledge of the Old Testament compared to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they even started building traditions. Some Jewish traditions of purity made it impossible to even associate with Gentiles, non-Jews. So how does that work in the church? I can't, I can't deal with you. This, my traditions say I can't mix with you. How does that work, right? And how do you maintain unity in this situation? So there was tension. So let's look at verse 18 here, right? That's a little bit of a Corinthian uh, context. Here. Verse 18. Was any man called Kaleo when he was already circumcised? He's not to become, become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called or kaleled in circumcision? He is not to be circumcised. So what does all this mean? In a nutshell, those who are circumcised represented the Jewish people. Uh, this was the external distinguishing mark that distinguished a Jewish man from all the non-Jews. This was a big deal. This is what separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were not circumcised. That wasn't a common practice for the Gentiles at the time. So this was a very much distinguishing mark. So this created some kind of discontentment between the two groups. And Paul says, remain as you are. Right? And believe it or not, some of the Jews wanted to fit in with the Greek culture. A historian named Josephus writes about ancient plastic surgery, okay? So these Jew, the Jewish men were already circumcised the eighth day, early on when they're babies. But Paul says, do not be uncircumcised. So what some Jews were doing in this culture 
because the discontentment was they're having surgery. I don't know how this works, but surgery to conceal their circumcised state. I know how circumcision works. I don't know how uncircumcision works. But according to Josephus, it was happening. This painful process, people were going to fit in with the Greek culture. Interesting, isn't it? And then with the Gentiles, he says, do not be circumcised. Remain as you are. And there's these Judaizers that were floating into the churches at the time. In Acts 15, you can read about this issue. Where some Judaizers, basically those who could have been Jewish converts to Christianity, were saying to Gentiles, hey, brother, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. They're adding to the gospel. So that was creating a lot of discontentment within the Gentile body. Interesting, right? So Paul is saying, stay, remain as you are. Be content. And it's more than saying, so Paul needs to back it up. So verse 19, Paul backs it up here with theology. We always want to back up our claims, guys. You always want to back up your, you, what you've been told with Scripture. So Paul is backing this up with theology. Why can a Gentile be content in his uncircumcision? Why can a Jewish man be content in his circumcision? Verse 19, circumcision is nothing, he says, Paul writes. And uncircumcision is nothing. Right? Basically, he's saying it doesn't matter. Being circumcised or uncircumcised has no bearing on your status with God. It has no bearing or spiritual benefit this is just the culture that you're a part of. Paul is saying Jesus is enough. If you believe in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've given your life to Christ, that's what matters. And this, as he goes on to say in verse 19, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. That's what matters. Do you obey God? And I'm going to read one verse, some, a cross-reference. Galatians chapter 5, if you want to follow along, go to your right a few books. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says the same thing to the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, there it is again, it's about being in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. It means nothing. Saying the same thing. Why? Why? But faith, working through love. Paul, in essence, is saying the same thing in Galatians and in Corinthians here. Basically, obedience means that Jesus is Lord of your life. And not just some external, uh, external obedience where I'm just going through the rituals, I show up at church, I bring a Bible just to please God. That's, that's, that's called legalism. That's not what God is talking about right here. What, what, as Galatians 5, 6 is obedience motivated out of love, faith out of love. You, you, you want to obey God because you love him so much. Because you love him so much. Love for God is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Love for Christ. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your what? God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Bible says that is the greatest commandment. And love others. 
So a Christian who's been circumcised in the heart internally, this is what matters. This is what Paul is talking about, internal circumcision. You've been changed internally. The mark that you have is that you will love God and you will love others. This is what Paul's talking about. He's trying to avoid false religion, which is all external, which is all ritual. Paul's teaching about true religion, which is about the heart internal change, your love for God. Remember what Jesus said in John 14. If you love me, you obey me, right? Paul, that's what he says, right? If you love me, you obey me. Obey, obedience doesn't gain us favor with God, but just because of our love for God is a fruit of what's happened inside. Verse 20, Paul says, Remain as you are, therefore. Be content. Be content. Be content. Don't buy the lie, Corinthians. Don't buy the lie, church at Evergreen SGV. Meaning, however God culturally formed us. Many of us here are Asians. Some of us are Caucasian. Some of us are Hapa. That means you're mixed. Some of us may be Mexican someday. Well, however God made us, be content. I think there's a beauty in that. Embrace this. Embrace how God has formed us. I remember as a little boy, my, my parents were born in Japan. And my mom, you know, she lovingly made us bento for lunch. I was thinking to myself, I had these onigiris, that means rice balls and maybe some gyoza or something and some nori or some seaweed and I'm eating my lunch and I'm kind of hiding because, man, how come I can't have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich my friend has, right? Looking backwards, there's no way I'll take the peanut butter over to bento, but there was something within me as a boy that was kind of like, ah, I don't know about this, you know? Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. Enjoy how God has made us. Obviously, we don't carry ungodly practices into our Christian lives. In Christ, be who you are, right? Being Asian, I'll be honest with you, I think it actually worked out for my advantage as a football coach. People have asked me, what is it like to be an Asian or Japanese coach in pro football or college football even? You know, and I think it helped me because... I have less issues to deal with. What do I mean by that? There's no prior history in terms of with my black players or my white players or my Polynesian players or my Hispanic players. It didn't matter. Like, uh, they just looked at me as like, okay, who are you? I got to prove that I know what I'm talking about, of course. I got to prove that I'm, I could coach football. I got to prove that I'm trustworthy. But I, that was an ad, advantageous thing. I didn't have less obstacles to cover perhaps at your workplace perhaps on your teams you may look like oh how do i fit in don't worry about all that just be you under christ be trustworthy be the best worker possible help others be successful utilize the positives that god's given you doesn't matter don't be so fixated on trying to fit in just be you be genuine in you carry the identity that i am in christ this is who i am this is who I am. Walk confidently in that. Another thing to consider here in the life of the church and perhaps where you live and work is just to be able to honor and respect one another, appreciate other people's differences. This is what we're talking about. These things don't define who we are, right? 
I mean, as Pastor Mako talked about it, you know, with Pastor Hugo, we're praying and we're investing into a Spanish-speaking ministry here. We're surrounded here. Acts 1.8 says to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We want to reach all of those areas. Church family, how will we respond if we have a, if and when we have a Spanish-speaking segment of our congregation? In love, of course. Perhaps the Lord is preparing us to be more diverse. So we've got a lot to learn here from the Corinthian church. One exciting time. I mean, this, this is one of the very most exciting times in the life of the church. So many things are is taking place here. Remember, the Lord says, I will build my church. He's doing it. Let's go to our third and final point here. Let's make our lives count by being content with our control. I'll explain what that means. Control, fill that in. Control. The Roman Empire, they had a social pecking order. I mean, at the top of that list was the emperor. He was, he was seen as a god. And then there are senators and other uh, politicians that are there. And then there are actual Roman citizens. And then there are non-citizens. And at the bottom of the pecking order were slaves. And depending on your, where you fell into that pecking order, determined the level of control that, uh, that a Corinthian or a Roman had. And so Paul goes to a second illustration in the life of the Corinthian church to teach about contentment. In the Corinthian church, they had slaves and free people within the same congregation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that having slaves and perhaps your own owner within the same body at, at, at Corinth. Let me, read to, let me read what John MacArthur wrote here uh, to give a little fuller context of the culture. In the Roman Empire of Paul's time, perhaps 50% of the population were slaves. 50%. And I'll just add a little bit. Why is that? They conquered a lot of people. Okay, They conquered and took over a lot of people. But unlike most slaves throughout history, the slaves of that day often often was better educated, more skilled, and more literate and cultured than the average free person. A large percentage of the doctors, teachers, accountants, and other professionals were slaves. These are highly educated people. Many of them lived in relative ease and were treated with respect. Others, of course, lived in constant poverty, humiliation, under cruel and merciless owners. Slaves were everywhere. This is, this is the part of the Roman culture. Okay? So imagine what I said earlier. At church, you come to the Lord's Day celebrating and excited, and there's a group of slaves, and there's a group of free people. How does that work? Right? How does that work? How does one stay focused on the work of ministry under those situations? So how does Pastor Paul address this situation? How does he minister to this situation? How does he minister these, to these two specific unique groups? Well, let's go to the word. Verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, he says. He says, be content in that. He addresses the slaves. Do loss. He addresses them and says, do not be worried about it. Don't worry about it. Be content. Now, that's easy for him to say, or maybe easy for us to hear, like 2,000 years later. How does that make sense? How could, how could he even say this 
with a straight face to the slave at Corinth. Remember, he undergirds everything with theology. Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. He goes right back to the identity of the, uh, of the slave, or the slave or the slave owner. Your identity is no longer slave or free. Your identity is in Christ. To the slave, he says, look, look, in Christ, you're free. You're free from the bondage of sin. In Christ, slave, you no longer have to pay the penalty of sin. In Christ, this is a short window that you have to live. Because in eternity, you're a freed man. You're royalty in Christ. So Paul is encouraging the slaves to say, be faithful, be a good witness, work hard, be obedient. This is what he's telling them. In other parts of the scriptures, he talks, to, talks about how slaves are to conduct themselves. To the free person, he goes, you're not, you think you, you have autonomy? You think you're in control? No, 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 no. You're my slave now, Christ says. I'm your Lord. You're my slave. In verse 23, it says, you were bought with a price. It says, Therefore, do not become slaves of men. Brothers and sisters, we're all slaves. Christians and non-Christians, we're all slaves. What do you mean? We serve somebody or something. Whoever we love the most, we're going to look to please. Whoever we love the most, we're going to obey. That's how it works. It could be a spouse. It could be your children. It could be your boss at work. It could be someone that you look up to. Or whatever you love the most. You love your house. You love your image. You love your career. You love money. Whatever that is, you're going to serve it. You're enslaved to that. But as Christians, Paul is saying, those things may describe you, but now Jesus is your Lord. You're a slave to Christ. You don't run yourself. You submit to the lordship of Christ because you're called to Christ. We belong to Christ. We want to please him. He's the one we want to obey. Amen? He's the one that dominates our thoughts. I mean, this, he is the one that we love. And you, we can't, as the Bible says, we cannot serve two masters. You can't. So Paul is leveling the playing field again. Isn't that what he did, sisters, with, with marriage? Remember, he raised up the wives. Now he's just leveling the playing field on a spiritual level with the slaves and, and the slave owners and the, and the free people. He's just leveling it. There is no status there with, in God. In God, are you in Christ? That's all that matters. But I want to, Paul is a realist here, and, and he addresses the issue there in verse, at the end of 21. Come back with me in verse 21 if you could. He says something very interesting. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Right? So he's talking to the slaves and says, if you're able to become freed up, do it. Right? The slaves at the time could actually earn their freedom. How did you do that? You bought your freedom back. That means you, on your free time, slaves would have other jobs for money. And if they saved enough money, they could buy their freedom back. So there was a possibility of this, all right? But if you aren't able to, Paul says, don't worry about it. Remain as you are. So God has given us a certain level of control, amen? And so, I mean, I remember just 
trying to help some of our coaches and players remain focused. There's ambition is a good thing at some, in, at some level. Some want to play more. Some want to perhaps earn more. Some people want, want to uh, uh, be more visible, have a higher platform. Some coaches might want to have more responsibility. I don't think ambition is a wrong thing. However, these things kept us from being focused. I remember John Wooden, one of my, one of the, one of my uh, role models that I had and uh, have, and uh, he says, the more focused you are on the things you cannot control, the less focused you are, you are on the things you can control. Let me read that again. The more focused you are on the things you cannot control, the less focused you are on the things you can control. Be content. Be content wherever you're at. If you have a certain ambition for a different job or a certain type of a, a, a promotion, go for it. Work hard, but be content in where you're at. Be great at what you're doing right now. The key is this, not to be consumed by the next thing. This is, this is important for us to understand. It's, so, it's, it's good to strive. It's good to try to continue to compete to improve. But do not be consumed by this because that will create discontentment. You will not be focused. Remember, brothers and sisters, we can't control the past. It's gone. It's already done. You can't go back in time. We can't even control the future as much as we like to think. You can't. But what God has allowed us to control is today, the present. Dominate today. Dominate today and perhaps the future will be closer to what you want it to look like. Now, I want to address a certain thing here. I know for, for some of us, just talking to several people and in our church, outside of our church, there's been some uneasiness with our political situation. You know, perhaps you're not happy with President Joe Biden sitting in the Oval Office. Perhaps you had a different thought on how this is going to uh, play out. But it didn't. President Biden is there right now. And let's pray for him. Let's support him. We do live in America. If you're not happy with certain social or political things, get involved with what the Lord allows you to do in America. If you're able to vote, vote. If you're able to make your opinion known, make it known. Get involved. However, do not be consumed by it. Do not let this define you. Do not let this distract you from the main role that you came to be a part of here as God has called us to be. Remember what Jesus came to do. What did he say? Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Amen? What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. What did Jesus say? Upon this rock, upon who he is, I will build my church. What did he charge the church? Go make disciples. He didn't say go and make social change now. He didn't say go and, and, and become uh, involved and in, in consumed in politics. He says, go make disciples. Paul did not come to change a social or political structure of Corinth. He came to preach the gospel because God said, I have many people here. So he preached Christ. What did he say? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that what the Lord said? He addresses issues. Paul does clearly. He talks about it. But... 
he kept the main thing, the main thing, right, Keith? He kept the main thing, the main thing. I have a sign in my, in my office that says, or a card that says that. Just keep me reminded why I'm here. Let's finish up here, verse 24. You were bought with a price. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. We serve Christ now. He's our Lord. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in this condition in which he was called. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Let's affect the culture by having people transform into Christ-likeness. Let's minister the gospel. Let's pray for others. And then change happens. Things such as slavery cannot thrive under a culture which is dominated by Christ. Amen? We could change rules and laws. You cannot legislate morality. You can't legislate hate or love in, in people's hearts. How things change is by people coming to Christ. This is what we've been called to do is make disciples. The more fixated we are on the things of the world, the less focused we are on Christ. Let's make our lives count, brothers and sisters. I know this is important to you. Let's make our lives count by being content in Christ. Jesus is certainly enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for Paul being such an amazing pastor that he was boldless and fearless and addressing the social issues of the day, but never staying there. He went right back to you. He was true to what he said. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let that be the motto of our lives. Let that be seared and burned in our hearts so that we're about Christ and his death and resurrection, the gospel. So, Father God, I pray for all, all of us here at Evergreen SGV that we would know that, Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are the one who defines us. Jesus, you are the one that we love. Jesus, you are the one that affirms us. Jesus, you are the one that we want to please. Father, let this be real in our hearts so that we will be content in all circumstances of life. Help us to focus on what we can control and trust you for the rest. Trust you in the results, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you are enough. You are the greatest treasure of all. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.